Please sit down. Well, uh, as we've been saying, we're in the book of Job, and we're around about um, uh, page 514, although today we'll be flicking around a little bit, I warn you, uh, we're in the book of Job. For the visitors uh, here, and for anybody who's here for the first time, uh, Job is one of the more difficult books of the Bible, Um, so we're throwing you in at the deep end, um, but it's well worth studying. Obviously, the uh, theme of suffering comes up, and... uh, For that reason, I just wanted to recommend the two books again. Um, And um, the first is Out of the Storm by Christopher Ashe, which is uh, like a commentary or an introduction to Job, and it's really worth reading uh, if you're getting into this series. Uh, The series is actually based on this book. You will will sense a sense of deja vu, maybe, as you read it. Um, But it's well worth reading. It's a really uh, good introduction to the book of Job and the whole theme of uh, a man struggling with God around the theme of suffering. Uh, also, I've been reading quite a bit this week, uh, C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. Uh, now, I always struggle with C.S. Lewis, um, partly because it's written in the 1950s, and uh, for some reason, Earlham High School didn't give me the uh, deep and profound uh, understanding of Greek um, classics and uh, Enlightenment philosophy that seems to be assumed on every page. Um, but... Um, but if you get into it, it's well worth uh, reading. It's well worth reading. And you go back to another book about suffering and you realize you're in the shallows compared to the deep waters of C.S. Lewis and the problem of pain. So well worth reading if you can get hold of it. Okay, so we're around about page 514 in, in the Bibles. Uh, let's uh, pray, shall we? Father God, we uh, thank you for the book of Job. Uh, Lord, if we had wanted you to write a book of how to deal with suffering, we wouldn't have asked you to write Job. Uh, We would have asked for something much more straightforward. But Lord, you, in your infinite wisdom and patience with us, your people, know what is best for us. Lord, help us to learn that in our hearts as we hear your word preached this morning. Amen. Uh, In November 2010, uh, there was a Radio 3 survey uh, which was talking about happiness. Does anybody remember the results of this survey? Happiness is? Sandra. Be married to stay married. That's not the one I was thinking of. But I think, no, that wasn't it, wasn't it? Yes, that wasn't it. But the main conclusion, as reported by the Daily Mail at least, was, <laughs> so bound to be reliable, is happiness is eating pizza in front of the telly in Norwich. So you lucky people, only last Friday, we as a family were experiencing that very happiness, eating pizza in front of the telly, and now we're going to be moving away, so I'm wondering whether we're ever going to be happy again. <laughs> and the pursuit of happiness, of course, has become something of an art form in today's society, hasn't it? In fact, I think David Cameron was speaking about happiness uh, around about that time with that, sermon, what, uh, that survey and what makes um, people happy. And it might not be pizza and telly. Uh, That completes your general picture of wonderful happiness and knowledge. But I wonder what does make you happy. Well, it's probably things like being with family or friends or maybe having a sufficient income. They say that about 40,000 a year is enough. After that, additional income doesn't bring any more happiness. Perhaps it's the happiness of your children or the occasional holiday. Or perhaps it's meaningful and fulfilling work. I don't know. 
I mean, who doesn't dream of a job where we're in control of everything we do, people look up to us as an expert, people do what we ask them to do, and, and money's not an issue. This <laughs> doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> um, who doesn't look forward to a wonderful summer holiday when the sun always shines, the activities are never too expensive, and the children never argue? <laughs> I mean, that would be true happiness, we think. That's what we should be working for. The problem is, in the book of Job, that what is looking at what happens when all of these things are stripped away. You see, Job had many things in his life. He had lots of pizza and television. And he lived in Norwich, well, not really. But he wanted for nothing in his life. And in chapter 1 and 2, when God points out Job's true faith and worship, Satan asks God this legitimate question. He says, well, it's hardly surprising that he's a true believer, is it? I mean, he's got everything that he needs to make him happy. Of course he's going to worship you. So what we then get in the book of Job is a test. A test of a true worshipper. So if God should allow the pizza and the telly and living in Norwich to be stripped away, would that person still worship God? And if so, what does that look like in the midst of such pain and suffering as Job experiences? And you might expect the answer to be some kind of sort of a stoicism, you know, a kind of uh, English uh, stiff upper lip. I don't care what comes my my way. I'm going to grin and bear it. I'm going to worship God through gritted teeth. I'm going to come to church and nobody will ever know that I'm suffering. Everything will be just as it was before. Wouldn't that be the mark of a true believer? Somebody who had real faith in the face of loss and suffering. But the book of Job tells us something different. And as we look today at some of the chapters of Job, there, Job responds to his friends, his so-called comforters, who sit with him through his suffering. We discover that a true worshipper like Job, firstly, is going to feel pain much more acutely, much more strongly than an unbeliever. And secondly, he's still going to long to take his case to God. So let's look firstly at how a true worshipper feels this pain. Loss and suffering is indiscriminate. It affects everybody. It's a common experience of the human race. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an Easterner or a Westerner, a Northerner or a Southerner, rich or poor, nobody's immune from their own personal anus horribilis. Now, if you're an unbeliever, of course, loss and suffering by their very nature are going to hurt. And nobody's going to try and take that away from you. But my point is that if you don't believe in God, then loss and suffering is exactly, in a way, what you should expect. You see, if the world is purely the work of random chemical and biological processes, then we should expect random loss and suffering to be part of our experience of it. If you think that society is down to human beings trying to do their best, then we have to accept that sometimes they're not going to succeed and loss and suffering will result. If you believe in a God who stands back and doesn't get involved, then of course you are defenseless against loss and suffering coming your way. But as soon as you start to think that this is so unfair, then you're starting to think, the way the believers do. You see, the problem for believers, or the problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis called it, is that we feel the pain more intensely, precisely 
because of what we do believe. We believe in a God who is both good and in control. So let's have a look at Job and how he describes his own suffering. Do you remember last week we looked at chapter 3 and verse 23 uh, where Job said God is hedging him in, meaning there was no escape from his misery. In chapter 6 and verse 4, um, uh, God, uh, he, Job sees God not as a loving hand reaching out to him or some sort of secure and protective rock, but as an archer whose arrows rain down on him, whose poisoned tips fill Job with terror. Chapter 7 begins by contrasting his situation with that of the hired hand in verse 1. At least he can expect wages at the end of the day, verse 2. Even the slave, although he doesn't get paid, after toiling in the heat of the sun, at least he can expect the rest and relief of the evening shade, there again in verse 2. But for Job, there's only futility and nights of misery to look forward to. Verse 7, he complains to God, Look, my life is like a breath. I haven't got much time here on earth. God, if you don't pull your finger out, I'm never going to be happy again. Time will run out. The days are passing like a weaver's shuttle. He's saying, God, you're supposed to be good. With your goodness, you're supposed to be generous. And we see that in so many ways, don't we? We see that God is generous. When God made the world for us to live in, he could have made just a series of long sheds with ventilation shafts, cages, and uh, food dispensing machines. And we would never know in life any different uh, to a battery chicken. Instead, he made us this ultimate free-range paradise full of beauty and wonder for us to discover and to use for uh, his purposes. And Psalms, like Psalm 145, are full of believers worshipping God because he is such a generous God. He gives us every meal, every pleasure, every possession, every bit of sun, every night's sleep, every moment of safety, everything that sustains us and enriches our life. On top of that, there's his spiritual Generosity. It's demonstrated throughout the Bible. God's mighty acts in saving Israel from Egypt. His willingness to forbear and forgive when his servants fall into sin. His readiness to teach men his ways. His mercy in grafting us wild Gentile stock into the Jewish olive tree uh, of the people of God in Romans 11. And so on. See, believers experience God as full of generosity. So when they experience loss and suffering... It goes against the grain of what they expect of God, and they suffer a unique pain. Listen to the words of uh, Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But whereas there in Psalm 8, the psalmist marvels at the dignity entrusted to human beings, of caring for God's world. Job, in his suffering, just can't see it. Job offers us this cynical parody instead in verse 17 of chapter 7. He says, What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? For Job, at that time, God is just like a pest who won't leave him alone. Will you never look away from me or... Well, let me alone, even for an instant, he asks. In verse 20, we see the image of the archer coming back. God uses him for target practice. Verse 21, God is an accuser who picks over Job's past 
a God with no grace and no forgiveness. It's all so unfair. Job says, in effect, I've confessed my sin. I'm a real believer. I'm living a new life. So why, oh why, oh God, do you persist in finding fault with me? If you turn over just to chapter 9, though we see that Job's concern is not just limited to himself and his current suffering. He's seen it all before. He's observed, he's observed the apparent unfairness of God in other people's lives as well. So in chapter 9 and verse 22 over the page. He throws this terrible accusation at God. He says, God, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. In effect, at that moment, Job is giving a vote of no confidence to God. He's starting the impeachment process. God's supposed to be good and generous in control of everything that happens, and yet he's not living up to that promise. He's neither good nor great. He can't discern between blameless and the wicked. When an epidemic brings sudden death, the innocent are mocked, verse 23. When a land falls into the hand of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges so that there is no justice. Well, if not God, then who is it, he asks. And of course, if you've read chapter 1 and 2, then you'll know uh, that question is more complicated to answer than it first appears. And no doubt we'll come back to it. But for now, Job is still losing his pizza on television. In chapter 16, just flick over to there. Chapter 16, verses 7 to 14. Job is feeling as though God is just piling on the pain. Verse 7, you've worn me out. Verse 8, you have bound me. Verse 9, God assails me, tears at me, gnashes his teeth at me. In verse 12, the archer comes back. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. And to Job, and maybe to ourselves, all this suffering seems so deeply unfair, doesn't it? And as we'll see next week when Diana speaks, Job's friends have a way of getting around this problem. You see, what they do is they just deny that undeserved suffering ever happens. They say that if you're suffering, you must have done something very wrong to deserve this. And often you hear people saying those words, don't you, expressing that kind of philosophy. They say, I must have done something really terrible to deserve this. Or they say the reverse, and they say, I must have done something really good to deserve this. But the book of Job tells us that that attitude is so wrong. Suffering is the common experience of mankind, indiscriminate. We all experience loss and suffering at some point in our lives. And yet, if we're a believer, a true believer who truly worships God, then the pain that we experience will be even more acute because we believe that God is good and is in control. And if we fail to feel that pain, then perhaps, actually, we have a false understanding of God. Perhaps, actually, we see a God as dualistic. In other words, a God who is simply tied up in some kind of power struggle between good and evil. Sometimes God wins, sometimes evil wins. But that's not the God of the Bible. Or perhaps your understanding of God is a God who set up the world and then stands back as some kind of social scientific experiment uh, and folds before his eyes. But such a God could never be called God and is not, could never be called good and is not the God of the Bible. Or perhaps your understanding of a God is one who tries his best, but at the end of the day is not fully in control. Sometimes things escape his attention. But that's not the... Uh, the God of the Bible either. The true worshipper of the living God believes that he is both good and in control 
And therefore, paradoxically, we feel the pain of suffering even more deeply. But it doesn't end just there. For secondly, the true worshipper, in the midst of all the pain, longs to take his case to God. And Moira is going to come to read to us now from chapter 13, where Job takes, talks about taking his case to God. Job has heard from his friends, and this he replies, My eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will truly defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Thanks, Moira. Do you remember last week we uh, talked about in the evening, in the midst of terrible suffering, God is still there. God is still there and waiting for us to engage with him, even though sometimes our feelings can't actually feel him or sense him. Well, in Job 13, we get a sense of why God might still want to go banging on that door of God's. He says, verse 1, My eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. In other words, he says to his friends, I'm not stupid. I know what the world is like. But the difference between Job and his friends is that he longs to take his case to God's. Verse 3, But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God's. He asks his comforters, his useless friends, how they would fare before God. Would they be able to pull the wool over his eyes? Verse 9. No, says Job. God would rebuke you. He would terrify you. Verse 11. Your defense would crumble like clay. Verse 12. But me, Job, he says, a true worshipper, I will do it. I will go before God and put my case. 
I will put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands, verse 14, because even though he might slay me, I will still put my hope in him. I will put my defense and he will deliver me, verse 16. I have prepared my case and he will vindicate me, verse 18. Why? Because Job knows that despite everything that has happened, he still knows that God is good and God is in control. He knows that there is nowhere else to turn. Despite everything, he knows that he has been made to enjoy the presence of God. In chapter 14, and verse 13, 17, he longs for an appointment with God. He says, set a time, he says, remember me. Let's restore this relationship we have together. He says to God, I am made to be loved by you. I am made to be in fellowship with you. If only, he says, later on in chapter 23, he says, in the depth of his suffering, if only I could find you, if I could find the door to knock on, Job would be there knocking on that door. Because despite all the terrible things he has said about God and his suffering, in spite of all his harsh words at times and his lowness, he knows right down in his inner being that he wants to have a relationship with God. He cannot let him go. Christopher Ash in this book compares it to one of those terrible uh, romantic dramas where there's a troubled relationship between a, a boy and a girl, and the girl shouts at the lover saying, I hate you, why do you do this to me, I hate you. And yet we know that she really loves him. And she just longs for him to prove to her that he is not the horrible, horrible man that she feels him to be at that moment. She longs for him to love her. Which, of course, he probably will just before he gets into a taxi in a raining night or something like that at the end of the film. But perhaps some of you in the midst of deep suffering are saying to God, why, why, why are you doing this to me? Perhaps you have longed to meet this terrifying, mysterious God and and know that God does love you and understand your needs even in your darkest hour. And paradoxically, that is the mark of a true worshipper because we expect God to be God. Now I know that in the these uh, sermons. There's no way we can deal satisfactorily with the, uh, the problem of pain. There's no way we can cover uh, all of the issues around suffering and give you nicely rounded answer, answers. Yes, we can, uh, we can try looking at things from an eternal perspective, like uh, a young lad who was once interviewed by Gavin Reed, the former Bishop of Maidstone. This boy apparently had fallen downstairs when he was a baby and, and had tragically spent most of his life going in and out of hospital. But still, the boy said he believed that God was fair. The bishop interrupted him and asked, well, how old are you? The boy said, 17. How long have you been, how long of those, how many of those years have you spent going in and out of hospital? 13 years, came the answer. And do you think that's fair? Asked Asked the bishop. And the boy answered, no, but God has all eternity to make it up to me. God has all eternity to make it up to me. Or with C.S. Lewis, maybe we can reflect, well, if we say to ourselves, we have all we could ever want, and if that all does not include God, then it's possible, isn't it, though hard and not a nice thing to believe, that it's actually in our own best interests to have some of it stripped away, some of that pizza and telly stripped away, or other things we hold dear. Because actually, these things are of little value compared to recognizing 
our need for God. And some of you know that to be true in your own experience. Some of you perhaps have wanted at some point in your lives to marry a non-Christian man or a woman, knowing that uh, it would be a marriage where at the deepest level you would be pulling in opposite directions. And it costs you dearly to walk away from that relationship and worship God with your whole heart. And yet it was the right thing to do. And it costs to be an open Christian at school or college or in the office. Perhaps a loss of face or a loss of prestige or reputation. And as things, but as these things are stripped away, a true worshipper is revealed. Others of you have suffered in other ways, deep and profound ways. And maybe you've gone through those moments when you've been shouting at God, why, why me, it seems so unfair. And yet you've been revealed as a true worshipper of God. More than that, as we reflect on Job's uh, unique pain and his longing to take his case to God, we, all of us, all of us Christians, should be deeply challenged. You see, do you think that the friends of Job, with their fatalistic attitude to life, would have been at last Wednesday's prayer meeting? I don't think so. I mean, their point would be, well, God's made up his mind anyway, isn't he? Uh, you sinned, therefore you suffer, that's all there is to it. There's no point in talking to God, you just have to accept it. But what about Job? He would have been there, wouldn't he? Because he would be looking not only at his own loss and suffering and desperate to put his own case to God, but he'd be looking around the world, wouldn't he? He'd be looking at all those things that we see on our television screens, as we saw him doing back in chapter 9. And he'd be saying, God, this is too much to bear. This simply isn't good enough. You're supposed to be good and in control. God, what is happening in your world? And he'd be there, wouldn't he? He'd be there at the prayer meeting presenting his case. And I believe that those kind of prayers, the prayers that feel the pain, the prayers that still plead with God, are bound to be powerful and effective. Jesus taught us so much when he taught us the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. He said, The widow pesters the unjust judge until he finally gives away. How much more, says Jesus, ought the believer to pray to the judge of all the earth? and not give up. But Jesus concludes that parable with this question, doesn't he? He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that's a question for us too, isn't it? If Jesus should return tomorrow, will he find us in that deep longing for God that pours itself out in prayer? Or will he find us at home with pizza and the telly? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we don't understand the bad things that happen in this world. We don't understand the suffering and the loss that comes our way sometimes. And yet we know you are good and we know that you're in control. And Lord, we do want you to do something about it. And Lord, I pray that as we consider these things in our hearts, we would take our concerns to you, Lord, and present all of our pain and all of our cares and all of our worries for others and give them to you. And we pray, Lord, out of your generous and good heart, you would pour forth your blessings upon us and the world.
in the name of Christ. Amen.